0: Michelle Coles Brooks, welcome to Tolkien Theatre, friends. It's a pleasure having you on the show, especially because we're going to talk about your play, Hitler's Tasters, that we reviewed four years ago. I cannot believe it's been four years. So thank you for being here. And for the people who are yet to know your really beautiful, wonderful play, can you tell them what Hitler's Tasters is all about?
1: Sure. First of all, thank you so much for having me on, Jose. Um, I'm thrilled to be here. I'm thrilled to be talking to you. Um, Mm -hmm. Hitler's Tasters. Yes, it was four years ago that we had it in a tiny, tiny theater at the IRT Theater in New York. And um, uh, Hitler's Tasters is based on the true events um, reported by a woman named Margot Volk, uh, who claimed in her late 90s, she's living in Germany, that she had been conscripted to be one of Adolf Hitler's food tasters. Um, It was a story previously unknown. And she said that Hitler had a number of young German women that he conscripted to be his food tasters for poison. poison. Um, And so this play um, explores what life would be like for those girls In a room, every day, three times a day, waiting to see if they're going to die after each meal. It's a dark comedy, (laughs) Um, so there are some. It's it's you know there's some relief in it, Um, but it very seriously looks at um, what young women are doing to pass their time um, in between possibly waiting to die
0: that's yeah that's like you think about that and you're like how is that how could that be a comedy right so i'm really curious when did you know that this could be a comedy because it has to be said that the play is freaking hilarious like i remember sitting there and just like laughing my ass off the entire time how did you figure out that you could tell this very dark story as, as a comedy
1: well, first of all, I'm really happy to hear you say that because some people get very uncomfortable about laughing, uh, you know, about the, sub- the subject matter, and which I understand, um, but um, I mean, we need to laugh about some stuff, right? I, I think um, I didn't intentionally go into it one way or another. I just, I just went in to explore what these women's life, these young, the life of these young women, what it would be like. And, you know, I think naturally when you put young women in a room together under pressure, there's bound to be some comedy. I mean, I was a young woman once, like I remember we were hilarious. We didn't mean to be sometimes, but we were hilarious. And, you know, and also through, I think the innocence of young people, um, they can speak some truths that are funny, not funny. You know, we sort of recognize them, but when we hear them through innocent an innocent form. Um, it resonates with us in a different way. So sometimes we're laughing because it's laugh out loud, funny. And sometimes we're laughing because we're acknowledging a truth. Um, but I really feel like, I don't know. I really feel like laughter is such an important way into our hearts. You know, it can really help us, um, open up into other feelings and accept other ideas. And so, um, I always hope that there's when I'm writing that, that, that humor comes into it because A, I think we need it. And, and, and B, I think it's, it's a, it's a gateway drug into, into all the other emotions.
0: I completely agree with you. And also something that I had very present both when I was uh, seeing the show like so many years ago, and also when I was reading the script uh, in order to talk to you was that along with the, laughter that I remember I laughed about also while reading the script. But along with the laughter, there was also this sense of dread. Like I I would say despite my my best efforts, because also, this is so interesting. I'm gonna ramble a little bit, Michelle, so I apologize. It's so interesting because you ace this world of like mixed feelings that we have. Because obviously we are seeing young women who were Nazis and who supported Hitler and who thought that dying for Hitler would be an honor. There was no better way to die for them than to perish because they were providing a service to the Fuhrer, right? Like I love the part in the play when they are talking about Hitler and mentioning people like Fred Astaire and people who the rest of the world at Myers, I would say for positive reasons. And then yet we have this women who everything tells us, you should not care about this young women. You know, they're Nazis. Like you cannot wish anything good on people like them. And yet with the play, I dreaded something bad happening to them. I mm-hmm. didn't want them to die. I wanted them to know better, to learn and to figure out what was happening. As a writer and as an artist and as a human being, I guess, what was it like to play with those mixed feelings? Which I'm I hope I'm not being presumptuous, but I'm assuming that you care for your characters a lot and you also don't want them to die, even though they want to die.
1: Yeah, I mean I, I mean, look, I don't I don't know. I don't think you can write anything unless you have compassion for your characters. Um, you wanna understand them. Um, you have to dig into them and find what's making them the, the way that they are, and then whether they're horrible or whether they're wonderful, you're still you still love them in a way, right um, the way you might love a relative who's like maybe done something bad um, i i don't I don't know it's all conflict. I feel like we're con we, we're constantly living in conflict and and i don't I don't know how to um I don't know how to escape that. And so I think, I think I'm think i always conflicted about, about everything. And so writing characters in conflict feels like a, a relief for me, maybe a little bit. Um, I, you know, what really hit me again and again as I was working on this piece was that these are young women like any young woman in our lives, you know, like our daughters and our nieces and our, cousins and our sisters, and um, they were also, you know, if, if we're talking about the play taking place, despite the anachronisms, the play taking place in the mid-40s, just before the war is over, I mean, these young women have grown up with Hitler as a father figure. They don't know a world without him, and they've they've become indoctrinated, and um, you know we 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 can't forget that before the war people were starving people were you know at odds the germans were suffering doesn't excuse anything obviously i'm jewish but right um there are reasons that things happen and i think it's very important to understand those reasons um so so I never thought of the girls as Nazis. you know. I thought of them as young women who were chosen for a job. And some people have said to me, well, what if they just refused? What if they just refused to taste Hitler's food? And I was like, I mean, I feel like if Hitler tells you to eat your peas, you eat your peas. I'm not sure that you have a choice, <laughs> right? I'm not sure. I don't think that any of us know what we're going to do in times of crisis—it's very easy to assume that we would rebel or we would be part of the Underground Railroad. Or, but um, I think that's—it's easy to say, um, but we can't—we can't. I don't think we can judge them. We have to understand them, especially because they're young. And um, and then it became important to me over the course of the play for them to start, you know, they never thought about questioning before. When you're young, you don't question. When my kid was little and I said, you know, in five minutes, but it was really like three hours, like he didn't question it, he just he just believed whatever I said, you know, that's their world. And so to watch them also in the play, uh, to, to start poking holes in their world and their belief system um, was something that was really important to me. Um, and it, it actually pained me in a way to, to to have to poke holes in their belief system because because once those puppet strings are cut, there's no there's no getting back up.
0: You touched on something that I feel like we could perfectly go into like a philosophical existential rabbit hole if we talk too much about this. But you have touched on what I think in so many ways is kind of I would say like the worst of the times that we're living in which is that there's no room, there's no interest, there's no space in the grades anymore. Everything's binary, black or white. You know, you're either an apologist or you're against something. You're, you know, you're either pro something or hate it with all your guts. And something that's really beautiful about about Hitler's Taster is precisely that it's a, although it's a very bright, beautiful show, it's a show that completely exists in the grades. So I was hoping, if you don't mind, can we talk a little bit about the reaction when the when the play first ran in New York? Because I don't think I remember any coverage that was to like pearl touching or any coverage that was like, yeah, this play about, you know, German Nazi young girls can't happen. But I wonder what the conversation was like on your end, obviously, as, you know, you're closer to the play than I am. So what were some reactions that people had that maybe surprised you, things that you weren't thinking about that people brought up about the play? Did someone, for instance, tell you, why did you write this play?
1: Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, We have gotten some pushback. Uh, a lot of people don't like the H word, and I understand. Right? I understand. I'm not crazy about it myself. Um, so there were some. We we have encountered um, critics who have refused to um, review it just on the basis of the title, um, which is um, too bad. You know, it kind of made me sad. I think that um, in a, in a bigger, in a globalized way, because I think sort of what you said, like. Everything is uh, black and white, yes or no, good, bad, and um, I think if they had given it a shot and seen the play, they would have understood what we were what we were doing. Um, I think there's a uh, I, I don't know. You know, it's funny there, but there hasn't been as much pushback as I thought. There there have been anecdotal situations. There have been some some bigger news outlets that have not. Have turned it down because of that, um, but honestly, and you know, a letter here and there. But honestly, I've been so I've been very pleased that um, so many people were willing to check it out, and then toward the then would understood as the play went on how it went. We did a um, a really substantial run in um, Skokie. Which, as you know, was outside of Chicago, which is where um, the big—I I can't remember the year—but there was the the big. Uh, well, first of all, there's a huge Jewish population. Um, you know, post Holocaust um, people settled there, and then there was the big, you know, neo-Nazi march there, and and all of that. And so I was really nervous about playing there because I thought, um, quite frankly, like older people sometimes. Know their Hitler a certain way, (laughs) World War II, just there's no messing with time. Um, I thought that I would get a lot of pushback, and they actually were amazing, Um, especially people that had family that had been in the Holocaust. Or um, I've even had Holocaust survivors. I'm sorry, it's not accurate. One Holocaust survivor, I only had the an actual conversation with one woman who was a Holocaust survivor that said to me, this is really important. Like you have to, it's important that you tell the story and that you, um, and that you doing it with young people makes it relevant to young people today. So that actually has been a surprise. I was worried that people would be more knee jerk in general. Um, again, like, you know, as I said, there has definitely been some of that, um, but the openness has been surprising to me and uh gosh what else we did have a there was a theater we were supposed when we were first in new york we were supposed to then move for uh for a short very short run to a theater in connecticut um that was actually supposed to bring in middle schoolers and use the play as a conversation about um to reintroduce them to world war ii And um, I was actually going to fly back in from LA and have a conversation with the kids. And then they canceled it because they said it was too close to the midterms. (laughs) Yeah. And that uh, they were a, in a sort of a red area, a blue state, and um, that some of their board members might not be happy about it and that it was too political. And I was like, But it's Hitler, right? Like, it's hard to kind of wrap your head around all of that. Um, I mean, obviously, we have some contemporary references, you know, the anachronisms. So there are conclusions to be drawn. But um, in the end, we're talking about Hitler. So that one was a (laughs) shocker.
0: But it's also a point that I also want to discuss. And it's like, it's so telling, right? That in a red area, people would think of Hitler as a mirror to the person or the people in government that they're following. So as an artist, how do you negotiate that, you know, being able to create the art that you wanna create in a world that will tell you, we can't show this because you might offend people who think this way or, you know, not wanting, for instance, like I'm really sad that to hear that, you know, middle schoolers couldn't go to the play. When I was shot a few years ago, very recently, when I saw this horrendous number, I don't remember the exact number, about the number of American students who didn't know the Holocaust happened. And when we deny people access to history and when we deny them just like the basic knowledge of history, we are doomed to repeat everything that we've messed up and, you know, as a species so far. So how do you deal with this? Knowing that, you know, there might be pushback that you might be criticized. Is it easy for you to just like approach your work removing all the noise around you?
1: No, no, it's hard. Um, It's hard. I think, you know, as a playwright, right? We, we want to get staged <laughs> and right. I mean, it's great to write a play. I, I love writing plays. I really, really, it might be my favorite part of the whole process, right? I'm not an actor. And so I sort of love the first read. Once it starts getting completely out of my hands, sometimes I get like, I lose my mind a little bit and it becomes a complicated thing. My baby is, you know, going out to the world, but I love, I love writing plays, but in the end, I think you write plays for them to be seen. And so so yeah, it, it 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 will occur to me like, is this going to upset people? Will this offend people? Will people come see it? Oh, will anybody stage it? You know, Am I wasting my time writing something that maybe nobody's going to want to see or pay attention to? And but in the end, you know. I think if you are, if you, if you decide to become a playwright, you're probably not in it for like the giant windfall that you're expecting or, you know, or for the big love that you might get in the world. I think that you're in it because you're just compelled to do this thing. And so for whatever reason, I'm compelled to do this thing. And in the end, I could only have fidelity to that because if I try to, Please anyone else um, there's really no point because there's that's not that's not a guarantee that anything will get done anyway right (laughs) so there's no there's no guarantees so I feel like I might as well just follow my heart and um, and just put it out there and be relentless and deal with the rejections and deal with the pushback and hope for the best and for the best and then every once in a while you get somebody like Sarah Norris at New Light Theater Project who saw it and grabbed it and took it and took it to the next level and put all these wonderful pieces in and elevated it. And these actors that just, then they elevated it. And then I got to write some more stuff because when I saw what they were doing, I got to improve it. And then they moved from there. And, and, you know, so every once in a while you get lucky and, and, uh, and, and it and it's, you know, worked out okay. I mean, hopefully people will come see it. <laughs> like we're always just hoping, you know, but um you know, in the end, I just think there's no guarantee, so you might as well follow what your what your what your heart and your soul are telling you to do. I mean, there must be a reason. I, I heard this story, and it was like it was like it just like fell from the sky and inhabited me. And I knew as soon as I heard it, I knew it was something for me. I knew it was something I had to write. I knew it touched all the buttons of things that worried me about the way that we t- treat young women, about the way that we, you know, the way that we treat them as, as um, dispensable, we build them up, we tear them down, we use them up um, in the way that we, you know, just so many things and what was happening politically in the world, what's still happening politically in the world. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm going off, but like there are just a couple of articles about Vladimir Putin and his food tasters. The man has food tasters. There is a playbook for these guys, right? We can't ignore it we have to say something, we have to scream about it. There's a lot of things to scream about right now, but, um, but there are some really big things happening that are, that are scary right now. And, and so, I don't know, I guess you just have to say it and, and, and hope that somebody somewhere will hear it and it will be meaningful to them.
0: All right, again, things that keep repeating themselves for just the terrifying part of what your play uh, you know, showcases so well. I want to talk to you about your beginnings as an artist and as a writer. When did you know that writing was your
1: calling? In seventh grade, I had a really, really mean teacher named Mrs. Jackson. I'm fairly certain she's no longer with us, so I can name her, Um, and she was really mean. And, but she, I wrote a story once and she read it to the class. And then she looked at me and she said, you're going to be a writer one day. And then Mrs. Jackson was my favorite person in the whole world. (laughs) And uh, I I had always liked writing. I never thought I wasn't thinking about a profession at that point, you know. Um, But the feeling that I had when she said that I could be a writer was, it was pretty cool and uh and I always wrote I was not brave as a writer in a lot of ways I was afraid to put my writing out there I sort of thought that you had to be like like given 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 I don't know given permission by the gods like they had to you know brand you as a writer and and uh I, I didn't get the part for a long time about how you just kind of had to sit down on your butt and put words on paper and just do it and do it and do it and do it and, do it and take the rejection um, and take all of that. Um, so I, I, I always wrote, but I wrote in different forms. I, my background is actually as a journalist, I was in public radio for a long time. Um, and which was, which was great because I got to um, listen really deeply to the way that people speak. And I think that really informed me uh, in in terms of writing dialogue. Um, and I also had to learn to write on deadline and I had to learn like, we've got, you know, I've got 15 seconds for this copy or I've got three minutes for whatever it is. I had to write for time. So I really had to, I really learned how to discard what was unnecessary. I think it was great training. Um, and then at some point, uh, I just started writing and I was writing fiction and stuff, but I, I wasn't putting it out there that much. And, uh, and then I wrote a play and I sent it somewhere and somebody did it, just did a reading of it. And I'll just never forget that feeling of being in the theater for the first time. And I, I just didn't, I didn't know if I wanted to dance or throw up, you know, it was just all there was just so many feelings, and I just didn't. all I knew is I was feeling so much. And um, I liked that it just wasn't as safe. Um, and then uh, I was also, so at the time I, I, I was um, producing a a, a a public radio, a national public radio program that was about travel, and I was I was, sending people all over the world to travel and write these stories, these amazing stories, and then and come back with them. At some point, I was like, I'm sitting in a windowless office in LA with bullet holes on the side over underneath the freeway overpass. And I'm sending other people out to travel and write stuff. And I realized like, I didn't want to be the one um, editing the stories. I mean, I actually like editing and I like the producing and I like all that stuff but I really wanted to be the person telling the stories and so I finally just sort of took a deep breath and jumped and um got really got really serious about it.
0: Well, then you mentioned you know learning how to listen to people because you have such a gift for dialogues it's like I almost got the sense of like being and you know witnessing like a screwball comedy like a classic comedy it's like there's like music to your dialogues, and I wonder, can you talk a little bit about how how do you find this music? How do you find this really incredible, catchy rhythm to what your characters are saying? Like, do you rehearse with someone else? Like, do you read out loud to yourself? Like, do you give different voices to the characters and practice on your own?
1: I, um, as I may have mentioned earlier, I'm not an actress, and so I cannot do uh, voices. But <laughs> sadly. Um, but I do because because of my training, I read everything out loud. And so I'm very, very attuned to um, what I think I'm very attuned to what sounds natural and um, what sounds written. It's very important to me or my goal is to never the, the, you as a as somebody sitting in the audience that you will never feel my fingers on the keyboard. you know, um. I want. My goal is that all the dialogue uh, just feels like the dialogue that's supposed to happen, um, you know. Whereas before, I loved to be very flowery and say all kinds of very brilliant, insightful things. <laughs> and um, but it's a really challenge to sound natural, you know. And uh, and I think, yeah. I mean, I used to have to listen with headphones on, and I worked with you know three quarter inch tape. I had to. Uh, uh, like move the tape and cut, literally cut with a razor blade and tape stuff back together. When, when we were editing, it was just, just I was, it was a little bit pre-digital. I mean, the digital, like digital started like really expanding as I was kind of leaving. But um, I, I, when you listen to people, um, you really you really hear their rhythms and the way that they pause and think and don't always go in a linear fashion. And um, a lot of people who are talking don't listen. You know, they, a lot of people don't want to listen. A lot of people just want to talk. And so sometimes characters are at odds. They're not really listening to each other. Everybody has an agenda. I, I don't, I don't know how it happens when it does happen. I'm very grateful that it happens, but it, it, it it really bugs me inside when it doesn't feel natural. Um, And so at some point it will just bug me enough that I'll. I'll keep worrying it until it. So I'll spend years on it just trying to get it to sound like it came out spontaneously. <laughs> so speaking of that,
0: and you know the the first New York run of the play was four years ago, and we have been through so much over the past few years. Like, I, yeah, I don't think we need to remind people about everything that's happening. Did you do any rewrites? Uh, to the play, like, did you approach it from a different lens? Did you make any major changes? And if so, how did the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter uh, movement changed how you saw the play and what you wanted to add or
1: take from it? Mm. So the play has not had any major rewrites because it's just been shockingly relevant <laughs> through all of this stuff. However, I'm really fortunate for the past four years to have continued working with the same amazing director and the same amazing cast that has been game to add bits and pieces to, um, to, to show our solidarity with certain things that are happening, um, and to acknowledge them. So, um, you know, it's, I, I actually, as you said that, I realized, you know, we actually have a Black Lives Matter reference in the play, but it preceded George Floyd, right? I mean, you saw it. that was before George Floyd. so it was it was it, it was already in the conversation. Um, that we were all together when um Christine blasey Ford came came forward about Brett Kavanaugh, and we were all so distressed about it. And so we wrote in, there was just it's just a little something but a little something in, in, you know, to show our solidarity with her. Um, uh, Of course, when COVID knocked us out um, and knocked the world on its back, um, we, there were, uh, there were a little, there was a little nod to that, that we put into the play. I mean, it's just been amazing how these things have integrated. Um, The one spooky thing that happened, it wasn't, it wasn't by intention at all, is there's a, I don't know if you remember, but there's a, there's a mention of Pittsburgh and and um, because one of the girls favorite cousins moves to America and to Pittsburgh and I sort of was making fun of Pittsburgh my my great grandparents when they came from the Ukraine for some reason they went to Pittsburgh and so I always thought that was kind of funny and and I wrote that in and then during that first run was the shooting um, at the synagogue in Squirrel Hill which is actually where my family went when they left the Ukraine so it was Strange. There's, there's been a lot of those strange moments. Um, but yeah, the, the cat every time I would say, Hey, you guys, this thing is happening in the news right now. Like, let's, let's give a nod to it. What do you say? And they're, they've always been game. They've always been willing to try it and throw it in. And um, I love that about them. You know, um, just the, the girls were just doing the show in North Carolina. I think they're just coming back to New York today. And um, this is, you know, the war had come down in Ukraine. And I sent them all a note. And I said, hey, why don't, is anybody up for sticking it to Putin? (laughs) And they were like, yeah, let's do it. So I just, you know, it's not a major rewrite. And I, and I, I'm I'm always um, trying to be careful about not being too heavy handed about things. But there's so little we can do, right? We can give money and as artists, we can just say something. And so we just, we have a little some something, something in there for Putin too. I, I, love <laughs> I
0: love it so much. I want to talk about the fact that obviously, you know, Hitler's tasters is not the only time where you've used history and facts to write plays, like you've done it also when you touched on the hostage crisis in Iran and you've also done work with veterans and people who have been, you know, sent to fight in other places in the United States. As journalists, we kinda, I would say we're kinda doomed to only report and to to speak about the facts and let people know what's happening. However, as artists, you are able to create a space, even like a different world. You're able to create worlds that are in so much ways better than ours while reflecting what's happening. And you also get to, like you said, to add commentary, to be able to make sense of the horrors of the world as they're happening. Can you talk a little bit about how pre theater maker you, you know, as a journalist, like Michelle the journalist, Works with Michelle the artist and Michelle the playwright. Does writing help you make sense of things that you could have made sense of as a journalist?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. because um, there were things I didn't want to report on or things I was reporting on that were facts, but I didn't. sounds terrible to say now in the context of the world now, but like I didn't like those facts. You know what I mean? Like they didn't seem right. They didn't seem fair. and I didn't want to put them in the world. And, um, and also I've always liked making stuff up, you know, and, and, uh, (laughs) and journalism was a little bit different at the time. You couldn't do that. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You know, it's, I mean, it's also like, it all just blows my mind now. It's all so complicated, but, but I think for me that I am better servicing um, a story or an idea if I can meditate on it and I can talk about it in a way that hits me so deeply that, it, that it, the story comes through me. I mean, it must come through me for a reason, right? Not, not every story shakes me to the core and makes me want to sit down and spend my life writing about something that I don't know. Um, there must be some reason, and I often find that reason as I'm as I'm exploring these stories. You know, you you kindly mentioned my play "Hostage," um, which took place during the during the Iran hostage situation, and um, I was writing about a Midwestern mother who, again, a true story, who had never been out of Wisconsin but her son who was stationed in, at the embassy in Tehran became a hostage. And while he was a hostage, um, she went and visited him. She went to Iran and the hostage takers let her visit him. And I have very little in common with a Midwestern woman who's very conservative, you know, whose, whose son is in the military, who's the mother of a hostage, but I am a mom, right? And the idea that this woman had done something so brave was really compelling to me. Um, and so I, I, I just really started nerding out on the Iran hostage crisis. I mean, really, I had no idea how fascinating it was. I remembered it from really, really young, but, um, I really became a student of it. And so it was just interesting, just hearing about this one woman opened up this entire universe to me, but it touched on the universe that I'm always kind of interested in, in the end, which is, you know, we we other people, like the other, right? And um, I, as with the military, my military piece, like I didn't know anybody in the military. so. I was like, what is that? I want to get to know that. I want to understand that. And always trying to, I don't know, I guess maybe I'm just very idealistic, but just trying to find those bridges, just trying to find that commonality, you know, because it's so easy to other people. And it ends as in the story of Hiller's Caesars, it's dangerous, you know, it's really dangerous.
0: I'm glad that you uh, spoke about yourself as someone who nerds out, because I really want to talk to you about research. And sure there's like, I, I was like, I can tell Michelle's a researcher. <laughs> and can we talk a little bit about what surprised you the most maybe about, cause I remember when I was when I, when I saw the play, wow. I was, when I was reading the play, think about the food that someone like Hitler or someone like Putin will get served, right? Like we're not talking about like a bagel. We're not talking about toast and butter. We're not talking about a sandwich. We're talking about this elaborate meals that they still have to have someone taste because they're so terrified that someone's gonna to try to kill them. So in terms of the research, even about just the menus themselves, which are wild, what were some of the things that surprised you about the context and everything that was happening that surrounds, you know, the facts that surround Hitler's taste Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: Um, yes, with the food, well, I had known that Hitler was a vegetarian, um, but, um, what, uh, one thing that was very interesting to me, uh, well, first of all, apparently he also appreciated a little pigeon from time to time. <laughs> but I can't, uh, I didn't write about the pigeon so much. Um, but um, I, it really made me laugh in the context of the girls because I thought, oh, they, you know, the one upside is you know, they're, they're, they're probably, they didn't have a lot of food, you know, we're t- toward the end of the war. Um, so having this job was a mixed, Bag, but but if they didn't die, they were at least going to be nourished, right? But then all they get, like, they don't even get meat, right? They get. (laughs) He's a vegetarian, so I just thought that was completely right for comedy because, like, are you freaking kidding me? (laughs) You know, (laughs) I'm going to die for you know I'm going to die for Brussels sprouts. I mean, uh, doesn't seem on par. Um, and uh, and then also it was I read that he. Um, didn't like to eat. He had a lot of stomach problems, a lot of gastro stuff, a lot of, you know, digestion. And um, he didn't like to eat his meals with the, you know, the men in his command or any of his advisors. He liked to eat with his secretaries or um, now, I don't think he actually ever ate with the girl, with the, with the girls who are the tasters, but I sort of, thought it was interesting that he wanted to sit with his secretaries and eat with them and not talk about the war or battle. I think it was probably the only time that he wasn't, you know, in order to aid his digestion. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, it's, I mean, it's funny, right? When you, you, you break down these giant people, you break them down and they are, their stomachs and their neuroses and their misfires, they're just all these strange pieces. They're not just these giants. And it's really interesting to investigate them and see and find these pieces of them that, you know, aren't, 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 aren't sort of common knowledge. So you mentioned that you
0: realized that you wanted to become a writer as a preteen basically. And something that I love about Hitler's Tasters is that it's totally like, you know, like canon with things like Mean Girls and Heathers and all those incredible dark comedies about young women. What were some of the things that you loved when you were the age of the characters in Hitler's Tasters or even earlier as well?
1: What are some of the things I loved? Um, I was nerdy. I did love reading. I loved boys. All kinds of boys, lots of boys. Um, I wanted boys to notice me, um, but I was very shy, so I didn't want them to notice me at the same time. Um, I loved, what else did I love? I, I don't, we're talking younger, I remember really loving Sean Cassidy when I was much younger. <laughs> but a life-size poster. Um, I recently followed him on Twitter. I was so excited just to find that he was on Twitter. Um, what else did I love? I, I mean, I did love sort of, you know, poetry. I did love sort of turn of phrase. I wasn't a theater kid particularly. You know, I liked going to the theater um, I didn't do. My parents took me to some big shows, but it wasn't a part of my world, necessarily. Um, you know, I liked girl stuff. I liked clothes. Um, I liked movies. I um, don't know that I was particularly distinctive in my in my likes, I just except for a little dark poetry here and there, which was not my which was not on par with my friends at the time, you know. Um, But, you know, mostly I just remember wanting to survive that time, (laughs) to survive middle school. And I actually have been, there's a new um, project that I'm doing where I've been interviewing um, teens from all around the country. And um, wow, one thing that is the same with every teenager from Alaska to Hawaii to New York to the South, every single one of them hates middle school. Every single one hates or hated middle school. So just FYI, we're doing something wrong when it comes to middle school. But I almost felt like my middle school self was like, oh, okay, it wasn't just me.
0: <laughs> I think it's only like people from like our grandparents or like earlier generations who are like, oh, school was the best time for me. I'm like, like, like <laughs> yeah, it's definitely not the same that happened to us. What would you tell young women, uh, you know, thinking about like you in the seventh grade, why would you tell young women who, Maybe don't know that they want to be writers yet. Like, how how would you invite them to join? I mean, I'm a writer as well. Like, I think we're we have the best job in the world. But what would you tell them to to take that leap and try writing something?
1: You know, I feel like if you're compelled to be a writer, I mean, you're a writer. You know, you've. I mean, you have to do the work. You know, I I would, but I would first off say it's a weird thing to be a writer, right? I mean, you sit by yourself, you got voices in your head. You know, it's a lot of work. You worry about this word and that word. You, I don't know about you, but I pace and talk to myself. I seem like a crazy person, um, you know, and then you put it out in the world and most of it is rejection. And then even if you If you're a playwright, and even if a theater will take it on the off chance that that happens, right, then the audience may not like it, or maybe the audience likes it and one critic doesn't like it and that's the end of you. So, I would say that if you want to be a writer, then you must really want to be a writer, because it's not, it's not a safe easy path. Um, And then the next thing I would say is, if you want to be a writer, you have to sit in your chair and write. Or you have to pick up, you know, a recording device and record. But you have to put words on something. You can't get nothing from nothing. Um, it's, a, it's a lot of drudgery, you know? It's not, it's not glamorous. And and but but when you have those moments where you where you catch the right word. Or you're given a story somehow from the universe that speaks to you, and you get to say something. Or you're in the audience, and somebody laughs at something that's important to you or meaningful to you. Um, I don't think there's anything better. I haven't found anything, with the exception of the exception of my son, of course. But <laughs> but like, as um, it's so fulfilling, and it's but it's momentary. And then the rest of it is a lot of hard work. So you have to be willing to do the hard work.
0: Michelle Coles Brooks, thank you so much. It has been a true pleasure talking to you. And before we go, would you please kindly remind our viewers and our listeners where they can go see and experience Hitler's Tasers, which in my very humble opinion is one of the most vibrant, hilarious, thought-provoking plays I have
1: ever seen, truly. Thank you, thank you. Um, yes, I would be happy to tell you. It, um, Hitler's Caesar's is, uh, previews start April 14th and it is running through May 21st and uh, it's gonna be at Theater Row at the beautiful renovated Theater Row. Wonderful, I love it so much. I
0: would say also, if you have a young woman in your life, your granddaughter, your daughter, your niece, your friend, your neighbor's daughter, please take them to the show. It's a show that's really made for young women to enjoy, I think. So don't deny them the opportunity of experiencing this. It's truly mind-blowing and just great work all around. So thank
1: you, Michelle. Break a leg with the project. I hope it runs forever. Thank you, Jose. I appreciate it so much.